On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. And then I sit down and talk to Portland's candidate for DA, Mike Schmidt, to talk about what it means to rethink criminal justice, why he's running for the role, and why it matters. And my advice for this week is to revisit some of the old things. I have revisited some readings from college and some critical race essays, some things that I read before I had much experience in the world. And it has been really illuminating to revisit those pieces. So my advice is revisit some of the oldies. You know, I always love The Giver, one of my favorite books. Every time I read it, I learn something new. Revisit the oldies. Let's go. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Snyongwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. The good doctor. And this is DeRay at D-E-R-E-Y on Twitter. Let's all give a shout out to habits, skills, learnings that we have picked up during this 5011th month of quarantine. So I don't know that I've learned a new skill, but I will say that since I finished my dissertation and, and became a doctor, I've been doing a lot of uh, fiction reading. And I've been revisiting uh, and visiting a lot of novels that have been on my bookshelf for a long time. Working on my book and working on my dissertation has meant that I've been doing a lot of research. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction. And I love nonfiction. I love great nonfiction. But I haven't been able to read novels as consistently as I would like and so I'm really, I'm doing a thing where I kind of like have certain authors who I know I like loved their one book. And then I'm like, well, let me go visit the sort of totality of their catalog of work. And so I've been spending a lot of time with Mohsen Hamid. Mohsen Hamid wrote Exit West, which is like one of the best novels I've read in the past several years. And I loved it so much, but I hadn't read any of his other works. So I went and read The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which is excellent, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. And I've loved everything I've gone through. I've been revisiting some Jhumpa Lahiri, uh, Interpreter of Maladies, The Lowland. I just finished uh, rereading my homie Elizabeth Acevedo has a new book coming out, Clap When You Land. I think comes out this coming week. Excellent YA book, but fantastic for all ages. So yeah, it's been it's been cool to like revisit that part of my brain because I love novels. I love novelists. I think like world building is one of the most amazing things like to create a world out of nothing and put your imagination on the page. I think it's great. And so I really loved getting into uh, a bunch of novels, both via audiobook and physical book. Cause one of my favorite things is also like listening to audiobooks while I mow the lawn and fold laundry. So shout out to audiobooks. I thought you were going to say you like listening to audiobooks and then reading the actual book at the same time. And I was like, that is too advanced for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I guess that's what those Harvard doctorates do, because I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. Okay. That's no, lot. but you were like, while I'm mowing the lawn. Okay. Thank you for joining us regular people down here on Earth. <laughs> how, how about you, Sam? Have you picked up anything new? No, not really. Like, straight up, I haven't picked up much <laughs> new. Uh, I've now been indoors for, I think it's been like two and a half months. Like, I've never experienced this. Have you gone out of the house, like, at all? I went out of the house to go down the street to get groceries twice in that entire time period. Other than that, no. So it's been two and a half months. You have only left your house twice in the yes. last two and a half months. That is correct. That's bananas. Because I was under the weather in like mid to late February. And so I was just like, I'm not going to go outside. I don't know what this is. There was like no testing available, no nothing. So I was just like, I'm going to stay in and keep myself and other people safe. And then everybody else started quarantining like in New York City, I guess, in the beginning of March. And so like just there was no opportunity to go outside after that. So I'm learning a lot about like myself, which is interesting. I think like reflecting on, you know, when I was a kid, I would love space and like astrophysics and think about like, what would it be like to be in space or to be on another planet or whatever. And I'm realizing like, that is definitely not me. Like I would not be one of these people on a space station for like six months or like out to sea on like a voyage for like four months. Like that's not me. 
So I'm just like reflecting on the nature of- I mean, you're halfway there already. Yeah, yeah. But I would like not voluntarily do it at all. And like, I don't see how like, as like a civilization, we would ever manage to achieve that because like just looking outside the window, like people outside today, it's like a mess. So yeah, uh, I think it's more like self-reflection on the nature of the world. Everybody was outside in New York today. Yeah, it's been, you know, you see in the pictures and after being inside for two and a half months and seeing everybody just go outside like that, it's like, wow, like I'm going to be in here for a while. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it feels like. I have learned um, a couple of new cooking skills or like we were talking about last week, things that I had never tried to cook and then cook them. But actually, I have been playing a lot with my natural hair, which has been a lot of fun because I feel like I never have time to do that. And I am on the road so much in normal circumstances that I just need my hairstyles to be quick and fast. And so this idea that I'm like gonna, for all my naturalistas out there, pre-poo, which means moisturizing your hair before you wash it and then washing it and then deep conditioning it for several hours while you are doing other things. And then washing it out and deciding how you want to dry it, if you're going to air dry it, if you're going to do the banding method or the tension method, or if you're going to blow dry it and actually put heat on it. And then like, do I want to do a twist out? Do I want to wear it under something else? Do I want to add a ponytail? Do I want to add clip-ins? I don't know. But now I actually get to try all of those things. And given the incredibly important political statement that a Black woman's hair is exactly as it grows out of our heads, I've been enjoying myself and I'm excited to um, unleash some of my new styles on the world instead of just make you all deal with my hair looking different every week. (laughs) How about you, DeRay? So I have recently gotten back into Bell Hooks. I, like many people, read her work when I was in college and just hadn't seriously engaged the text since I was in college. And that has been like a cool thing to just do. Also, I probably bought one of everything that could be bought for quarantine. I'm like the Noah's Ark of what you need a la COVID. Recently, I saw an Instagram ad for like brown underwear. And I realized that they're like no brown underwear. Like for guys, they're like no brown boxers, like skin tone boxers. So like my hunt to find skin tone boxers was like a thing that was yesterday that really just uh, consumed a lot of the day because... Tom Ford makes them, but they're so expensive that like Hanes needs to come out with a line of brown underwear. The other thing is I never, ever, ever in a million years thought that I'd be somebody who worked out when they got bored. But last night I was like, I think I'm doing 100 crunches. I'm like, I guess I'm doing some lunges. I'm like, look like I'm picking up these weights, which is really, I never imagined that in a million years. So that's been interesting. Dre out here getting buff. I'm trying to get shows this summer. See, you got a whole family. You, You had to glow up with the wife. <laughs> I'm out the Cho's game. And we got Reggie over here stunting. I, you know, I'm trying to get Cho. Y'all, y'all. DeRay's trying to be quarantined fine. Sam been with Ariel for 25 years and he's only 20. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was good. DeRay's the shady one, y'all. Well, with that, here's the news. So my news is about SNAP, or otherwise known as food stamps, which is a program that is creating a lot of headaches right now, in part because in most places in this country, what I didn't know is that you can't shop remotely using Snap. You have to go into the store, and that means potentially exposing yourself uh, or other people to, obviously, coronavirus because you're not able to actually order online and pay in advance. So there's an article now in the New York Times, which is covering the challenges for many folks who are relying on SNAP, which now is probably more than ever. Currently, there are about 38 million people receiving benefits through SNAP. Of course, that grows as more folks are encountering economic hardship in the context of the crisis. And for so many folks, they're not able to actually buy groceries and order them online to have them delivered without paying in advance. So fortunately, there is a program, a pilot program that's been authorized by Congress six years ago that only just started this past year that allows folks who are using food stamps to actually purchase them online and then pay when the groceries are delivered. The problem is that while the program was authorized six years ago, it only really started getting up and running a year ago. And it's only fully operational currently in nine states, uh, New York, Washington, Alabama, Iowa, Oregon, Nebraska, Florida, Kentucky, and California. 
Kentucky and California, by the way, just started making this program operational in the past couple of weeks. And Walmart and Amazon are participating in all of those states, uh, allowing folks to buy groceries via SNAP, have them delivered, and pay at the point of delivery. It's only currently fully operational in nine states. Folks in other states, including places like D.C. and Arizona, Idaho, North Carolina, West Virginia, Missouri, Texas, and Vermont, have signed up for the program, but the programs are not fully operational. Uh, And so you're not yet able to actually benefit from this program. You still have to go outside and order groceries. This is something that was interesting to read. I had no idea. I just hadn't thought about the fact that if you are using SNAP to buy groceries, that you do not have the luxury or the privilege of actually having that delivered in most places in this country. You have to go outside. And of course, there are so many risks associated with that in the context of coronavirus. So wanted to bring this to the conversation uh, and think more about like, there is obviously a pilot program. States are slow adopters, but there is an opportunity here technologically to create access for a lot of people to be able to purchase groceries using SNAP and not engage in these types of risks of going outside. And I think what you said, Sam, about this being an opportunity is so important, if only for the fact that so many of the solutions, as we've discussed, that we are creating right now should not be temporary. They should be permanent and institutionalized such that folks have the kind of ease and access to resources that they need, even after we find a vaccine and a solution to this thing. I think it's so fascinating when we are thinking about food insecurity in this moment. There are so many different categories of people. There are folks who thought that they were food secure due to government support and things like SNAP and WIC and others. And yet those things are, as you're saying, Sam, even more inaccessible uh, during times of social distancing and lockdowns. And then there are all of the folks who were previously employed and had access to food because of their paychecks and are now finding themselves among the tens of millions unemployed uh, in this country. What I also found unfortunately fascinating but unsurprising was just how many people People are predicted to be making more on the coronavirus unemployment increase than they were at their regular jobs. So when we are thinking about the kind of solutions that need to be permanent, if people are able to get employed again, which they should, they should be making a living wage when they do that. There is no way that somebody should be going to work and working hard every single day and actually be making more in this set of circumstances. Um, It is a gross realization of just how inequitable we have been for a very long time. And I'm, to your point, Sam, I'm really hopeful that we see this as an opportunity, local, state, and federal level, um, to make permanent some solutions we know can help people. Yeah, I think another thing that I'm thinking about in this moment and more generally is the way that there are limitations on SNAP in terms of one's ability to use it on prepared food and hot food. I know for me, like for much of my life, until I learned how to cook some semblance of food of my own, I would go get those rotisserie chickens like all the time from the grocery store. I'd go get a rotisserie chicken, put some rice and beans on the pot. And like that was my meal, 80%. Like that's how I got through grad school. You know, there are a lot of people who are living in poverty, who are unable to cook and prepare food for a variety of reasons, right? And we always talk about the way that poverty sort of compounds, like that sort of ecosystem and landscape of poverty compounds the impact of living in poverty and makes it even more difficult. And so if you're somebody who's like working several jobs, like taking public transport to get from your job, to pick up your kids, to get to your next job, if we think about the time it takes to cook, then it's worth considering the additional stress that is put upon somebody when they need assistance from the government to buy their food, but aren't able to use those funds to buy meals that are already prepared the same way that like I know I do for my family sometimes the same way that my parents did for me is like you just pick some food up that's already cooked bring it home and it's done and so I think the existence of that and then add that to the inability for them to have their food delivered I mean it just makes it so that people who are already living in the most difficult circumstances have additional work to do and are putting themselves at additional risk as Sam said because of sort of bureaucracy that is not advancing or is not serving a purpose that is meaningful other than its ostensible cruelty. I know that states like Maryland and Illinois have successfully passed bills that would allow certain demographics of people, I think over a certain age, to have access to 
prepared food already, but apparently it has to be approved by the federal government. At this point, the federal government we have is more interested in cutting millions of people off SNAP entirely versus like expanding the possibilities of what people can do with those SNAP benefits. So I appreciate you bringing that up, Sam, because I didn't know about the delivery. And then that on top of the limitations with prepared food, just it's just kind of like, for what? Why do that? Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. So for my news, I want to turn once again to my beloved hometown of St. Louis, where Some really awful things are happening in the face of this crisis. Before I go there, though, I want to read to you what the current CDC recommendation is about how to serve people experiencing homelessness and housing insecure people in the face of this virus. As of right now, Sunday, May the 3rd, this is what CDC.gov says. It says that encampments, so tent uh, cities, encampments, places outdoors and parks and otherwise where housing insecure people are living. The CDC says unless individual housing units are available, do not clear encampments during community spread of COVID-19. Clearing encampments can cause people to disperse throughout the community and break connections with service providers. This increases the potential for infectious disease spread. The website goes on to actually 
talk to folks providing these services about how to encourage people who are staying in encampments to set up their tents in ways that are socially distant, to ensure that nearby restroom facilities have functional water and are stocked with hand hygiene materials like soap, towels, hand sanitizer, bath tissue, and more, and to ensure that if toilets or hand washing facilities are not available nearby, that there is access to portable latrines with hand washing facilities for encampments of more than 10 people. Now, the mayor of St. Louis, Lida Krusen, once upon a time promised to follow these CDC guidelines when it came to housing insecure and homeless people in the city of St. Louis. But what has happened in the last few days instead is that these encampments, many of them in downtown St. Louis, just blocks from where I used to work, have been shuttered by police. Many people have decided in the wake of this that they want to keep themselves as safe as possible, even though they do not have a home to shelter in. So what does that mean? They've built encampments at parks all around the city in order to make sure that they could be distanced and not be huddled together in mass homeless shelters that do not have often the proper safety equipment or space to distance. The city has been making Hotel rooms available to people, but one housing insecure woman who was living in the encampment, Miss Renata, said that she called the phone number for being put in a hotel room and has not heard anything in the last three weeks since she made this call. What we also know to be true is that St. Louis City has been criminalizing housing insecure and homeless people for a very long time. That sleeping in a park or near a building is considered a municipal ordinance that should not have you thrown into the worst places, jails and prisons that St. Louis has to offer. But what has actually been happening is that people who have been breaking those municipal codes have been being thrown into the workhouse. The workhouse is St. Louis's version of Rikers Island. It is hard horrible. The people who are incarcerated there describe a place of absolute squalor with water that does not run, sewage that is backed up, mice and roaches that run rampant. A few summers ago, it got so hot in the workhouse that several people died and incarcerated folks were trying to make their voices heard through the windows and the bars. There have been activists on the ground at home who have been engaging in the Close the Workhouse campaign for years. And frankly, because the city has been trying to decrease the number of folks who are incarcerated in the wake of COVID-19, for the first time in a very long time, the population of the workhouse has fallen below the number necessary to move everyone incarcerated there to the city justice center, which is what the Close the Workhouse movement has been urging for years now. And still that has not happened. So here we are in a place where our humanity and our compassion needs to be at the forefront of every decision that we make. But instead, Mayor Lida Krusen and the city of St. Louis are kicking people out of the encampments that are making them safe and not giving safe, socially distanced shelter in its place. And so for my news, I want to build on the point you made, Brittany, and think about how we can put what's happening in sort of the contemporary political landscape of St. Louis in conversation with the historical phenomena that have shaped St. Louis to understand what's happening with St. Louis and the inequality that exists there generally, but also in the context of, of COVID-19. So as COVID unfolds, the toll that it's taking on Black people, as we've talked about, has come into sharper focus. Uh, in almost every setting, Black people are contracting the virus and dying from it at startlingly disproportionate rates. In Milwaukee County, Black people account for 27% of the population and over half of all COVID-19 cases. In Illinois, Black people account for 15% of the population, 33% of COVID cases, and 40% of COVID deaths. In Georgia, Black people account for 37% of the population and 62% of COVID deaths. And starkest of all, as talked about in this great Boston Review article by Walter Johnson and some colleagues, is the city of St. Louis, right? And Black people account for 47% of the population, almost three quarters of COVID cases. And it appears that almost every single person who has died from the virus in the city of St. Louis has been Black. In St. Louis, as is the case elsewhere, we know that Black workers are overrepresented among frontline service workers those who make low wages and who have little, if any, chance to social distance. In order to get to work, these folks have to spend hours on public transportation. And because healthcare in our society is generally allocated according to employment, Black people in St. Louis, as is the case elsewhere, are not being afforded the healthcare they need, even though they need it the most. 
Additionally, black people in St. Louis are more than twice as likely as white people in the city to be uninsured. And so what's happening in St. Louis has been, as Johnson and his colleagues say, structured into the fabric of the city. And these racialized patterns of disadvantage are the result of decades of conscious choices made by actors at every level of government and compounded by private industries like banking, insurance, and real estate. So for example, to be specific, in 1916, the city of St. Louis passed a racial zoning law by a popular referendum. The Supreme Court struck down racial zoning on equal protection grounds in the next year in Buchanan v. Worley, and St. Louis realtors, developers, and homeowners turned to the use of racial restrictions written into property deeds, otherwise known as covenants, that bound neighborhoods and new subdivisions to whiteness. The, quote, uniform restriction agreement is in wide use in St. Louis um, by the 1930s. It sought to, quote, preserve the character of said neighborhood as a desirable place of residence for persons of the Caucasian race. It also said that the homeowners could not, quote, erect, maintain, operate, or permit to be erected, maintained, or operated any slaughterhouse, junk shop, or rag-picking establishment, or to, quote, sell, convey, lease, or rent to a Negro or Negroes. These restrictions were written into the deeds as a condition of the sale, and they often still turn up in property transactions all over the city today. On the white side of the lines, Realtors could extract premium prices by promising that new residents and renters would never need to worry about having a black neighbor. And on the black side, they could extract even higher rents from the population that was growing through the years of the Great Migration, but legally confine them to certain portions of the city. These realtors made most of their money from the black sections of town in St. Louis, slicing up buildings into these small kitchenette apartments while skimping on upkeep and improvement. And even into the mid-20th century, indoor plumbing in many neighborhood, black neighborhoods in St. Louis was incredibly rare. What's more, there was, as we've talked about, the GI Bill, and that made housing benefits available largely to only white veterans. The Federal Housing Association engaged in the racist practice, as we know, of redlining, which left black people trapped while the white St. Louisians expanded into the suburbs and into St. Louis County. White folks moved west along the unfolding network of interstate highways, which were themselves, the existence of the highways was an economic subsidy to whiteness, built by white construction workers, giving them jobs through black neighborhoods, destroying those communities for the purpose of making it easier for white suburbanites to get from downtown to work. Many of these suburbs of St. Louis themselves had zoning codes which excluded multifamily dwellings and stipulated large minimum sizes for housing lots, in essence, done so in order to make sure that only wealthy and almost entirely white people could be the only ones who were living there. And to this day, many of the municipalities in the broad westward corridor of St. Louis are 95% or more white, and St. Louis remains one of the most segregated cities in the country today. The impact of that is that the medium income of black people in greater St. Louis is half that. The medium white income, the rates of poverty and unemployment are three times as great as their white counterparts. And black people are 12 times more likely than white people to live in a community of concentrated poverty and be proximate to environmental dangers. So the thing is, and we've talked about this before, I could have just said that last part, right? And given you all these like really dark statistics. But if you are not providing people with the sort of historical context to understand why the realities of these communities look the way that they do, and thus how those realities are shaping what the outcomes in COVID are looking like in St. Louis and elsewhere, then we are not taking a full account of what is happening and we are being irresponsible in the way we communicate this info. What is true, and you know, sociologists and social scientists will tell you this, is that if you just provide people with a lot of terrible numbers about how black people are experiencing, you know, have make less money or have higher poor health outcomes or uh, live in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. If you say that by itself, then people are going to be like, oh, well, maybe they should work harder. But again, that historical piece is so, so important because we understand that this was like decades and decades and decades in the making. And the things that Brittany was talking about do not exist without the sort of decades and centuries of state-sanctioned policy that made it so that Black people in St. Louis and across the country are living in the conditions that they do today. We have essentially a Missouri focus on the pod today for the news. And mine is about the first head prosecutor who is a woman of color in all of Missouri and the first Black person to hold the position of head prosecutor in Missouri, both at the same time, uh, Kimberly Gardner, who is the uh, circuit attorney in St. Louis City, 
There is a bill that has been introduced in a Missouri Senate committee, Senate Bill 889, that would give the Missouri Attorney General, so the state Attorney General, concurrent jurisdiction to prosecute a set of crimes in the city of St. Louis in addition to crimes at the state level. It would allow the Attorney General to bypass the current circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, and get referrals directly from the police and to initiate prosecutions that way. And it actually allows the attorney general to take over prosecutions that she started. So this is a bill that is just focused on neutering her ability to do her work. And you might wonder, why is Missouri trying to undo the power of the first black elected circuit attorney or head prosecutor in all of Missouri? It's because she's made it really clear she's going to hold the police accountable. She indicted the sitting governor and he's not the governor anymore. She has gone hard to say that the system as it's designed is not really working for people. And if we got to have this right now, then I'm going to make it work for people. And as a black woman, it is fascinating to watch them step by step try and dissuade her, try and challenge her, and now try to just strip her power. So in the middle of a crisis, you know, this is when things like this come up. They sneak in bills like this because we aren't. We're so focused on COVID. That's what all the news is. We don't even know how the Missouri Senate might even vote. Are they coming in person? Are they going to phone it in? How do you testify? Like, what does that look like? So it's in these moments that we have to be particularly vigilant because they just double down. So there's so much to, to take in about what's going on in Missouri and St. Louis in particular. I think, Brittany, to your news around the workhouse and incarceration in St. Louis City, I'm mindful that despite some of the progress that's been made way before COVID hit, what we're seeing since COVID has hit uh, has just not been on the level as other cities and counties in terms of reducing incarceration in order to protect people from the clear and preventable risk of spread within incarcerated settings. So when you look at uh, St. Louis City, incarceration has dropped about 16% since the end of February, compared to a 30% drop in places like New York City and LA, a 35% drop in San Francisco, and a 39% drop in Detroit. So there is some progress being made, but obviously it's not quite at the scale at which we've seen other cities. And there's a lot of work to be done in St. Louis in order to close the workhouse and then also to reduce incarceration in the CJC, which is the, the criminal justice center in the city. Clint, to your news, I'm reminded that the inequities that we see that have structured the case numbers and death rates by race to coronavirus are compounded by the response federally and at the state level to these issues. And, and what we've seen is that so many Black folks have been left behind in the response just as they were left behind in the prevention of this crisis in the first place. So, you know, 95% of Black businesses, uh, according to one estimate, are not eligible for receiving any money under the $660 billion Paycheck Protection Program. And so when you look at sort of the landscape of racial inequity in St. Louis and the dividing line between white and Black communities that were created so long ago, in many ways, when the data does come in in terms of which businesses are going to actually benefit from the relief bills that have passed, I would not at all be surprised to see those same disparities take place when we look at the distribution of benefits and relief. And then finally, DeRay, you know, to your news, uh, this reminds me of what happened in Florida over the past couple of years with state's attorney Aramis Ayala, who was also the first Black elected prosecutor in Florida, just as Kim Gardner is the first elected Black prosecutor in Missouri. And the governor quickly moved in Florida to take away her power to prosecute particular cases. And when you look at the bill that's being introduced, it covers the types of alleged crimes that would, uh, in some cases, be able to be prosecuted under the death penalty statute. So the three types of offenses that uh, they're taking away under this legislation um, from her ability to prosecute involve carjacking and then first and second degree murder. And so in many ways, this is sort of the same strategy through legislation as we saw Governor Scott at the time in Florida implement to deny Aramis Ayala the ability to end the death penalty uh, in Orange County. Um, so, you know, this is not a coincidence that they are both the first elected Black local prosecutors in their states, in states that have long histories of racism, and that this is just another attempt to deny them the ability to actually use that power for good to reduce incarcerated populations and to stop prosecuting and sentencing people to death. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song. 
a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Today, our guest is Mike Schmidt. He is running to be the DA in Portland, Oregon, in an election where ballots are currently out, and the deadline to mail them in is May 14th. Mike got his start as a public school teacher in New Orleans. He saw the toll that injustice took on the kids in his school. He followed a career path into law and now hopes to be elected to a position where he can transform Oregon's legal system for the better. Let's go. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Yeah, DeRay, thanks for having me. Now... One of the reasons why I'm excited to talk to you is because we have done some work in Portland around policing. And then when I found you were running to be uh, the DA, it was like, well, let's talk to him. How did you even get to this moment where you were thinking about running for public office uh, in this office? Yeah. Wow. Uh, You know, what I've been doing for the last six years in Oregon, I've been heading up a state agency that essentially looks at criminal justice reform for the state. Uh, how can we improve the effectiveness, the legitimacy of our criminal justice system? So it's all about data and research uh, and then investing in things that actually work to bring down crime. So when I heard that the current DA uh, was considering not running again, you know, I started talking to some folks and thought about my experience in that office, which was not research-informed, data-driven, uh, not concerned necessarily with what works to drive down crime, but just more concerned on the traditional, you know, go to trial, win the case, go to sentencing, recommend, you know, the same kind of punitive sentence the last person got. I thought, what an amazing opportunity to take what I've learned over the last six years uh, and bring data and research into a district attorney's shop in ways that I don't think have really been done uh, around the country too much. What are some of the things that you learned in this role? I have to imagine sort of looking at the state level that you must have just seen so much data and information and heard so many stories. I'd love to know, like, what did you learn in that role? The first thing that really hit me, so my first job at the Criminal Justice Commission was to look at how much prison each county is using, uh, measure that, and then see if we can uh, incentivize counties to use less prison by giving them money to invest in local public safety services, you know, more supervision, but also housing, treatment, drug courts, you know, alternative to incarceration programs. And the very first part of that job was to measure how much prisoner we're using. So that was my first role was to go county by county and look at how they're using prison. And believe it or not, it had not been done before this way. Uh, And so what I did, my first part was to, I created a, a PowerPoint. It had like 500 slides. I'd drive around Oregon and I'd show every single county This is how much prison you use. This is how much you use in property crimes and drug crimes. This is how you compare to your neighbors. And the first thing that I noticed was the counties were completely inconsistent. Some used a lot of prison. Some used a lot less prison. When you say used prison, what does that mean? So uh, the local county government, right, run by the district attorney, 
uh, and the local court system and the local police and the local jail. It's all a very county by county system uh, here in Oregon. So we have 36 different counties and the decision makers, uh, what you get arrested for, what you get charged with the district attorney's office, what kind of plea agreements are being negotiated, are there alternative to incarcerative programs in your community or not? And so when I say use prison, I mean somebody's arrested, convicted of a crime, and then what is the sentence that ultimately that person receives for the conduct that they were uh, charged with and, and convicted of? So you found that some places used prison a lot, some places didn't. Totally. The remarkable thing that I saw was in a couple of our counties used twice as much prison for the same crimes as every other counties and for different reasons. Uh, one county was sending twice as many people per capita for property and drug crimes to prison than any other county. Uh, so, for example, if just throwing out numbers here, you know, if, if one county sent uh, 100 people for every 100,000 to prison, this county was sending 200 people for every 100,000 to prison. So they were sending them for the same amount of time. They were just sending twice as many people. The other county was also using twice as much prison. But they weren't sending twice as many people. The people they were sending, they were sending twice as long. So where an average sentence in Oregon for a property crime, a prison sentence would be 24 months, they on average were over 40, 45 months of prison. And neither of these counties had any idea that they were out of step with their peers, that they were more punitive than their sister counties. And so just by showing them the data, just by measuring that, Immediately, those communities got together and said, you know, this isn't our goal. This wasn't what we were trying to be. We didn't know we were out of step this way. Let's drive that down. Let's see what other counties are doing. What programs are they investing in? And then how can we drive our numbers back to be more consistent with the rest of the state? In the information that you gleaned from that role, have you seen that? Like, what has that turned into? Can you just talk about what changes that has led to? Well, so in our state, uh, the changes that that immediately led to was we were on the course to having to build a brand new prison. Uh, it was supposed to be open in, in 2017, uh, and we were able to avoid that. So that's $350 million uh, that was the bill would have been due in 2017. And then, of course, the ongoing cost to operate and maintain a prison. So that was the immediate impact of that program. But what I think it really did for our state in criminal justice was it taught me, it taught a lot of people, legislators, the governor's office, local leaders, the power of let's just measure what is actually happening. Let's get away from the anecdotes that drive a lot of uh, criminal justice policy about, oh, it's worse than it's ever been or we had this horrible case. But let's actually look at what the data says and then make decisions based on what is actually happening in our communities and go from there. So it has led to other programs. Uh, it led to major uh, drug reform in this state where we looked at disparity in terms of who was being convicted for possession of a controlled substance. It led to that change. Looking at data has led to, we now track racial profiling across the state. We're rolling out that program agency by agency and we just put out our first report at the end of last year uh, in December, looking at uh, racial disparity in stops and profiling uh, and looking at that agency by agency. So it really, I think those initial days of measuring data and prison use were kind of rudimentary, a little bit of you know just descriptive data, but it's really led to a hunger and a desire by policymakers to look at what's really happening. Let's analyze that and then make decisions. How did this role in the perspective that you got at the state level, what did that have to do with you running for DA? Like how, what's the relationship between those two? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll go back even a little bit before um, I got my start out of college. My first job was teaching high school down in New Orleans. I was a public school teacher from 2003 to 2005 uh, before Hurricane Katrina came through that city. And that really was the roots of my interest in the criminal justice system uh, in an odd way. I went after college, I, I thought, you know, I'm hearing so much about the educational system and educational inequality. You know, I want to be a part of that. I want to learn about that system. Uh, and so I went down to New Orleans with the Teach for America program and became a teacher in the public school systems. And while I went to learn about our educational system, and I definitely learned a lot about that, 
I also inadvertently learned a lot about our criminal justice system. My students, uh, for the most part, were almost all black. The school systems when I was teaching there, and I think it's still the case today, are very segregated still between public and private uh, in terms of uh, race and ethnicity. And I got to see through my students' eyes their interaction as witnesses to crime, almost all of them, victims of crime, many of them, children of incarcerated parents, absolutely. And then also, I unfortunately got to witness some of my students becoming defendants in the criminal justice system and the impact that that had on their lives. Um, I remember one student, he was this like bubbly, outgoing, everybody loved him. Like (laughs) for a school assignment, he won. I I bought him a book. He wanted a book of love poems. He memorized every single one of those love poems and walked around every girl in school and just recited love poems. Uh, You know, it didn't really work for him in in terms of uh, getting dates, but everybody loved this student. You're not not supposed to have favorites as a teacher, but he was he's one of everybody's favorites. And then one day he comes into school after a weekend and he is just dejected. He is just down. His his affect, his mood, everything is just flat. And and it was so out of character. You know, I asked him, said, hey, what's going on? Uh, And, you know, he was a little bit didn't want to talk about it. We stayed after school because he and I had a good relationship like that. And he told me how he was arrested that weekend. Uh, He's 14 years old. He told me he was walking down to the corner store to get his siblings some milk, uh, and he walked up on a scene where police officers had a man down on the ground, and he had no relation to that. He just happened to be there, and the police officers turned on him, uh, ordered him to get down on the ground, and then produced and pulled a baggie of marijuana out of his back pocket. He spent the weekend uh, in solitary because he was 14 years old, so he couldn't be held with adults in custody. And then he was released after a long weekend and then come to find out that the charges ended up being dismissed because, thank God, in his case, there was dash cam footage. And apparently the dash cam proved that the police officer had actually put the drugs on him, that it was apparent in the video that he did not actually have drugs on him. Uh, And so the charges were dismissed. But I couldn't help but think like nobody would have taken my student's word for that. If it wasn't for the video to say, hey, this didn't happen, but even though those charges ended up being dismissed, his personality, his affect, his trust of the system, his trust of you know, adults and, and, and everything was just completely shattered uh, in ways that you know, changed his personality for the rest of the school year and probably the rest of his life. So after teaching for two years, I came to Portland in 2005 to go to law school, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get into criminal law, and I'm going to take that experience I had in New Orleans, and I'm going to be the change in the system. I'm going to be that person who's in the criminal justice system that sees my student as a student and thinks about, you know, what is this going to do to him? How can we do something differently, and how can we have a positive impact and change some of the things that we see going wrong? And so from there, I applied to be an intern at the public defenders. I applied to be an intern at the DA's office. DA's office gave me a shot. I ended up working there for five years um, after being an intern. That was a great experience, but I also didn't feel like I was the change uh, that I had wanted to be. Uh, And so got out, went to the legislature, worked on policy, became the director of the state agency working on criminal justice reform. So I take all of that experience and what I've learned as the director of an agency now that focuses on legitimacy in the criminal justice system, reducing disparity, reducing prison usage. And I want to bring that back to the office that I worked in and and really hopefully be the change that I originally set out to be. And what are some specific things you think you could do as DA? Like, how would you explain this role's potential to be a game changer in a place like Portland? Yeah. Uh, You know, it's kind of on two different levels as I see it. Uh, There's a policy level, uh, and then there's a day-to-day, how the county district attorney's office is run and its interaction uh, with citizens. So on the policy level, the Multnomah County district attorney represents the largest county in the state. Portland is in Multnomah County. And by virtue of that, by having 20% of the state's population, uh, having the most lawmakers uh, that represent this area, you really are, the DA really is a huge voice in statewide criminal justice policy. Uh, And so for Oregon, you know, that brings up uh, many different issues uh, that I think are really important and that I've started off this campaign talking about. So, for example, uh, the death penalty. 
I have pledged not to seek the death penalty if elected. I'd be the first district attorney to make that pledge. And I put out a piece about all the reasons why the death penalty fails us as a as a public policy. Uh, it doesn't keep us any more safe than other places that don't have the death penalty, do not have more murder than places that do have the death penalty. The death penalty itself has been shown to be uh, racially biased and applied to uh, people with diminished capacity disproportionately. It's expensive. Uh, in Oregon, we actually have not executed anybody in the last, we've executed two people in the last 60 years. So it's, it's rarely and almost never used. I've talked to many survivors and victims of uh, crime or, or family members of people who have been murdered, and I've learned from them and their experiences about how it didn't give them the closure that they thought it would. Uh, and I also talked to a superintendent who oversaw the two executions that this state did have in the last 60 years and the impact, the trauma that that had on him and on the people that he worked with that had to carry out those executions. So for many reasons, the death penalty is, is a bad policy. I've pledged not to seek that. So uh, one thing that's crucial for the district attorney is, is to be a voice on issues like that at the state level, to go down to uh, work with lawmakers and say, hey, there are ways that we can make our community safer that are different from the ways that we're doing it now. So kind of being a voice uh, on that type of an issue. Uh, there's many issues like that in Oregon. We are the only state in the nation with non-unanimous juries. You know, that needs to change. We have a cash bail system uh, where people are held uh, pre-trial. If you look at who's in our jails, we see that, you know, in a lot of our jails, around 50, 60% of the people held are being held before they've been convicted of anything. Uh, and a lot of that sometimes has to do with not having enough money. And so we need to figure out ways to get money out of our system. So the district attorney in Multnomah County is a unique role because of how large the population center is to be able to go down and work with policymakers to help change our laws. So that's on the one level, the DA, what they can do. On the local level, they are the ones who prioritize what crimes are being charged, what policies the office has, uh, how they interact with the public. So just, you know, saying, where do you want to put your resources? Um, the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office is, compared to other similarly sized cities across the country, um, has a very a low ratio of lawyers to citizens. It's a very tightly resourced office. So we have to prioritize and say, where are we going to put the resources that we have? And so saying, I'm going to focus on violent crime as opposed to, say, crimes of poverty, things of that nature. That's a resource decision that the local district attorney gets to make. So supporting and lifting up programs that are alternative to more criminal justice solutions. For example, in our community, like many communities across the country, uh, we are facing a, a big rise in houselessness. And so what does the district attorney have to do with houselessness and, and what can they do? Uh, and you know what I've seen in the research and the data shows that a lot of times the criminal justice system makes that situation worse. It erects barriers for people to be able to get housing. Uh, so having convictions on your record, owing fines and fees that put you into a debt cycle that you can't get out of, having your driver's license suspended so that you, you're not allowed to go to work. Those are all things that can negatively impact one's ability to stay housed. So thinking through as the district attorney, what kind of policies can I put into place to be a part of the conversation in a positive way to make a local impact on, on some of those issues. How are you different in this race from the people you're running against? You talked about the death penalty, but it, but what else sort of sets you out? Because I, I could imagine that in this moment, being progressive is sort of like way more acceptable than it was 20 years ago when we think about some of these criminal justice issues. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, in a lot of ways, I'm very much on the uh, the shoulder of giants who have been working on this for a long time and that have made conversations that I'm having right now possible to even be had. So absolutely building off previous people uh, and the work that they've done. There are two of us uh, still in this race. Um, we offer very different pictures of what the district attorney's role should be and what priorities the office is going to have. I've been very specific with, I've got a, a 28 policy platform. Uh, I've written several pieces on Medium now about different positions that I'm going to take. 
So I've been very specific about some of the large issues in this race. Uh, so death penalties, one, uh, opposing cash bail. Uh, but that also goes to just thinking about how we can get somebody's uh, financial ability and status out of how they're treated in our criminal justice system. So that leads to fines and fees and driving while suspended and and being billed for uh, being on supervision, for being on probation, you know, that we charge you a fee for that. Or if you're in prison or if you're in jail, how much money it costs to access the phone just to, to have conversations with your family when research shows that keeping people connected to their family and their community is actually one of the things that is going to make them most likely to not commit more crimes in the future, we put up barriers by making it super expensive. So thinking cash bail for me is is crucial, but it's also a part of trying to think about how we can get somebody's financial ability completely out of how they're treated in the criminal justice system. In Oregon, we have mandatory sentencing. Uh, so mandatory sentencing means that if you are charged with a certain crime, no matter what happens, if you're convicted of that crime, you have to serve every single day of the mandatory sentence. And what uh, a lot of folks that, that I've talked to haven't realized or hadn't really thought about is how that shifts the power in the system away from the judge to decide the sentence and puts it in the lap of the prosecutor that the prosecutor, by virtue of what charges that they are filing uh, and then how they negotiate that plea deal, uh, essentially gets to be the driver of what that person's sentence will ultimately be. Uh, I think when I talk to most people in the public and I say, you know, how do you think the criminal justice system works? They say, oh, well, you know, the prosecutor makes their case, the defense attorney makes their case, the judge makes a decision, the jury makes a decision, uh, and then they argue to the judge for what the sentence should be. And that is true a lot of the times, but mandatory sentence shifts that decision-making authority away from the judge. So just talking about how uh, we should put that back to judges to be able to make decisions on how people are sentenced. So these are all positions that I've taken in this race uh, that set me apart from my opponent who really is not taking uh, these progressive positions. It's a pretty stark contrast between the two of us. Uh, but also a really exciting opportunity for this community that has literally not had a contested DA's race in decades to be able to weigh in on these issues. The voters in, in Oregon chose to impose mandatory sentencing back in 1994. It's not been on the ballot since then to give them another chance. So in a lot of ways, things like the death penalty, cash bail, mandatory sentencing those things are on the ballot here in Multnomah County in this race. And so it's great to be able to talk about those issues, uh, educate people, hear from them about how they've been impacted, uh, learn from their experiences and, and, and raise their voices to make this a campaign issue. Boom. What do you say to people who are losing hope? There are a lot of people in this moment who have done everything that they were told to do. They emailed, called, voted, stood in the street, and the world has not changed in ways that they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? You know, I'd say stay engaged. I've been able to take positions because people like that have been engaged in the past, uh, that they have been working on these issues. They have been educating them, their neighbors. They've been talking to their lawmakers. They've been making those phone calls. And staying engaged, we're seeing movement. We're seeing hope. A lot of people are rethinking this, uh, the criminal justice system, uh, and just justice in general. I was talking to a, a supporter, an endorser of mine, first black woman senator in Oregon, Senator Aval Gordley, and we were talking about criminal justice reform. And she said, Mike, I need you to think about justice reform, not just criminal justice, but everything in our community, all the different aspects that we need to work on justice. Uh, and that's housing, that's education, that's health, and that's criminal justice too, but that's all of those things. And I think people staying engaged, um, talking to their legislators on the issues that they're passionate about. And when you get engaged in your community, you will see the people that are making a difference every single day. And it is really uplifting and it'll make you want to continue to stay involved and continue the fight to work on justice. Boom. And the last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? You know, early on, just in this campaign, and I've gotten lots of amazing advice over the years. But the thing that has stuck with me throughout this campaign, another supporter of mine, Senator Margaret Carter, she said to me, Mike, you can't do this by yourself. You need 
everybody to be in this with you. This isn't about you. This is about seeing a system for fixing things that have been going on for decades. You need everybody to be there for you and for this campaign and for this vision because it's it's much bigger than one person running for office. Uh, and so going out, talking to people and hearing from them and lifting up their voices and their experiences and making sure that they're a part of it. I think a lot of times what I've seen in the, in the criminal justice system is it's very siloed off and it's looking at one specific way to solve a problem or what it thinks is a good solution for a problem, but it cuts across all these other systems. You know, locking up somebody's parents is going to impact our foster care system. It's going to impact our education system. It's going to impact our health system. We need to start thinking about that and working together across everybody. And so when Senator Carter said to me, you know, you need to reach out and you need to, this isn't about you. This is about getting everybody together. We're all in this. We all have a stake. And so that's what I've been trying to do because, you know, being a candidate can feel isolating. You can feel like you're a little bit on an island that, you know, it's you versus the world or you're trying to do this. Uh, but I keep going back to going back to the community. How can we link our arms and, and, and walk together and, and make this a much uh, more sustainable movement? You know, because if it's just about me, it's not going to be sustainable. We're not going to make that progress. But if it's about everybody and we can get everybody shoulder to shoulder, we can really change some things. There we go. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Day of the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Hey, DeRay, thank you so much for the opportunity, man. And hopefully next time you're in Portland, we'll get to see you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Day of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.